Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. And welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights. In this episode, we're going to talk about antisense oligonucleotides, ASOs. And you may ask, what the heck are they? But at the end of this episode, I hope you'll have a good understanding about ASOs and their role in treating rare disorders, including genetic epilepsies. Earlier this month, the American Epilepsy Society annual meeting was held in Baltimore, and we found this year that there was an exploding interest in ASOs to the point where it was standing room only in these presentations. If you're looking for a summary of what was talked about regarding ASOs and genetic epilepsy at AES, look for Dr. Anna Mingarance's post, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Follow her on Twitter. She provides lots of good information about genetic epilepsies at CNS Drug Hunter. Another point that I found interesting at AES was this change in terminology from rather than talking about genetic epilepsies, talking more about developmental and epileptic encephalopathies or DEEs. So that terminology is coming around a bit more, which really recognises that the genetic epilepsies or what's been termed genetic epilepsies actually encompass a lot more disability and a lot of other symptoms apart from just epilepsy. Yeah, and that's something that we've been struggling with here in Australia. And and part of, again, what came out of our roundtable was that genetic epilepsy, which we've been labelling as in the past, suffers from a bit of an identity crisis. What, What does that mean to someone who doesn't understand how... SCN2A presents or DRAVE or KCNQ2. It's not just seizures. We have children with intellectual disabilities, with eating problems, with um, movement disorders, behavioural issues. It's it's a very complex um, disorder, any, any of the presentations, but also on a spectrum. There's a large spectrum across any of those specific genetic epilepsies. And, and trying to explain that or get recognition for that is is quite difficult. And that's evolving. And it's really good to see that evolve this year through um, at the AES. Yeah, with that change in terminology, I think better reflecting that complexity and the multiple symptoms. Now, if we're going to talk about ASOs, who better to interview than Dr. Stanley Crook? Dr. Crook's the founder and chairman and chief executive officer of Ionis Pharmaceuticals. Uh, as you'll hear, Dr. Crook started Ionis 30 years ago with the aim of developing a platform for more efficient development of treatments. So thanks very much, Stan, for helping us out with the podcast. So I'm glad to do it and looking forward to it. So what actually are antisense oligonucleotides? Antisense oligonucleotides are small bits of chemically modified nucleic acid. You can think of them as small bits of genetic information that have been modified to make them effective medicines. And how do they actually work? They're designed to bind to specific sites in target RNAs through the basic interaction that provides the specificity of genes, which is Watson-Crick hybridization. The genetic code, as you know, is just four characters, so it's vastly simpler, simpler code than the amino acid code, which begins with 20 amino acids. And the rules for binding are well understood and obeyed by all biological systems. And so we begin with a an opportunity to use knowledge about the determinants of where ASOs will bind in RNA to actually design medicines that do exactly that. That's very different from attempting to do the same thing even after 100 years of effort 
with proteins because uh, it's it's just a simpler process, simpler way to to think through making a medicine. How does that differ from that traditional small molecule medicine, say an anti-epileptic medication to reduce seizures? First, proteins are of course the agents that do the work of the cell and the and the body, and they are transcribed or translated from RNA, which uses the language of nucleic acids, and so. Translation is is a term that really matters. It means that the cell is translating information that's been stored in the language of nucleic acids into the language of protein. Small molecules are designed to bind to proteins and alter their function and thereby alter a disease process. The problems with that approach remain really rather daunting. First, proteins are enormously complex. They're highly structured. They're often in places that small molecules have a difficult time working. Uh, Small molecules have very little information. They're small. They contain relatively little information. And so discriminating one protein from another is, is not easy for a small molecule. And so specificity is an issue. The third problem with small molecules is that the vast majority of molecular targets that we understand today are not druggable with small molecules for a variety of reasons. And so the playing field is very narrow for small molecules. And then the old adage that if you change a methyl, you change the drug is absolutely true. And so with a small molecule, if you make even a tiny change in that small molecule, you can change the properties entirely. And so every new medicine is a new game. You can't really learn from what you succeeded or failed at in the past. And so it's an extremely inefficient, time-consuming, very costly process that is still associated with a 99% failure rate. The difference uh, in antisense that I envisioned 30, 30 years ago was, first, that we would understand the rules of engagement. We would use Watson-Crick hybridization rules to direct our medicines to the sites and RNAs that we wanted. It's an intrinsically simpler process. Second, uh, it's a far more specific process, and it's no more complicated than just information content in the medicine molecule. If you have more information content in the medicine molecule, you will have a more specific interaction, all other things being equal. Third, we would learn from our mistakes because within a particular chemical class, basically all the molecules are exactly the same except a different genetic zip code. And so it would be dramatically more efficient. And fourth, it would be dramatically more broadly active because all proteins come from RNA and ASOs are designed to bind to any RNA. And so the vast majority of, of opportunities are druggable with with ASO technology. And so all of those things were the reasons that uh, we've pursued this technology for these years. And you mentioned that ASOs are chemically modified, antisense oligonucleotides. Why the modification? What are you hoping to achieve with that? Natural DNA and RNA don't work. (laughs) They're unstable. They don't have the properties necessary to have them administered in some site in the body and then go throughout the body and where you want them to go. And so they have to be chemically modified, just as most natural things in the body don't serve as drug molecules. And so they're chemically modified to enhance their stability so that we can dose them infrequently. Natural DNA or RNA is degraded in minutes. 
They're chemically modified to enhance their affinity for target RNAs. The reason you do that is to increase potency. And as we've modified, learned how to design these ASOs and modify them chemically, potency has increased from essentially nothing to now extremely potent molecules where we can, we're contemplating dosing a human being with 50 milligrams in a year and being able to dose quarterly or even semi-annually if we like. And they're modified to reduce side effects. Um, this is sort of, this is the standard thing that medicinal chemistry does. It's meant to design better medicines. And over the years, we've learned a great deal about how to reduce side effects while increasing potency and broadening the activity. And all that comes from making them chemically modified using the knowledge that we have about the molecular mechanisms by which these these medicines produce their various effects. And ASOs work via mRNA and transcription, and so arguably a, a gene-based therapy. But how might they differ from other gene therapies like viral vector gene therapies or CRISPR technologies? Well, Anasense is the most direct route from the gene to the patient. And Anasense, uh, as we practice it and we've advanced it, uh, we have choice of many different mechanisms, so we can use antisense medicines to alter splicing, as we do with Spinraza, the medicine that affected essentially a cure of a catastrophic genetic disease, SMA. We can use these to cause degradation, degradation of the RNA through a variety of mechanisms that, that we understand. Or we can use ASOs to actually increase the production of specific proteins through other mechanisms. So ASO technology today is is vastly more versatile than the other things that you talked about. Second, ASOs are designed properly, distributed throughout the body. They can be administered by essentially all routes of administration. And we think we're on the verge of having commercially attractive oral administrations in man. So we've proven that they can be delivered by all routes of administration, and they can be used for a wide range of diseases. In our pipeline today, uh, we have a good many medicines for severe and rare diseases, but we have an even larger pipeline for the much more common health problems. And so we, our partners and regulators, believe the technology is ready for prime time, that is tackling diseases like hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. The other technologies that you mentioned are still in development. Gene therapy requires either delivery with viral vectors or some other means that limits its utility. And the vast majority of diseases are not single gene diseases that can be corrected by replacing the gene. The vast majority of diseases are multi-gene diseases uh, that also interact with the environment. So the genetics predispose and then the environment chooses. So there are numerous differences between these various technologies today that are simply a product of the progress made in each of the different fields over these years. And you didn't mention monoclonals, but monoclonals have contributed significantly to health benefits, and they are more broadly applicable than the other technologies you had mentioned. You mentioned that once again, they work by binding to proteins, but they have more specific information, and so they tend to do a better job as drugs, but they're limited to either proteins that are secreted in blood or proteins at the cell surface. And so all of these technologies, some of which are very mature, like small molecules or monoclonal antibodies, 
and others that are mature and, and moving along and ready for prime time like ours. And then gene therapy and cell therapy and a lot of other things are all efforts that take decades and they're going to take disappointments and failures and that is just the nature of this and that we all hope will come together as a flotilla of opportunities to improve the health of other human beings. So there are big differences, but obviously as a human being, we root for all of these efforts to be successful at some point. So you say that ASOs are ready for prime time and you're really excited about being able to even roll these out to more common disorders. Where are some of the other gene therapies in that same development timeline? Gene therapy, it's now been almost 40 years in development, 35, and I think perhaps $30, $40 billion has been invested. If you look at the history of monoclonals, I think that's very exemplary. The First paper suggesting monoclonals might be a useful therapeutic occurred now 50 years ago. It was 30 years and probably 20, 30 companies and about $30 billion before monoclonals matured to the place that it was clear that they could be generally useful. Gene therapy has proven to be more difficult, and there's certainly evidence that gene therapies can deliver some value today and a good many efforts and drugs in development. But gene therapy will be always be challenged by delivery and be limited by the fact that you need a disease that will respond to a replacement of a single gene. CRISPR is a, an exciting research tool, and we use it every day, as I would guess most biological labs do. But it's early, and it will require the process that it will look very similar to the process that happened with monoclonals, what happened with, with RNA-targeted therapeutics, is happened with gene therapy. It will take time, it will take effort, and there will be disappointments and failures along the way. And it's difficult for me, at least, as a practitioner to predict exactly when or if CRISPR-related approaches will yield a broad-ranging therapeutics. And so, I fully understand the desperation of patients and parents. I'm a physician, and and I feel that desperation keenly. And my advice to people who are desperately hoping for new technologies to, to help them and their loved ones is to temper your enthusiasm with the reality of the challenges of actually developing a technology to enhance health. They are meaningful. Most ideas fail and it takes time. And as much as I would like to, you know, give instant hope to all patients in the world, that's a disservice to everyone involved. Ionis is the company I founded 30 years ago. And prior to Ionis, I had a, a very uh, fortunate early career. In the first five years uh, of my first five years in the industry, I uh, led the building of what was the first broad anti-cancer program. And we put I think nine new anti-cancer drugs on the market in those first five years. And I'm very pleased with that because it, it then led to many other companies participating in cancer. And we've seen how spectacular uh, advances have been in cancer over these years, thanks to many, many efforts. One of the most exciting moments in my early career was I actually got into the industry because I was taking care of a patient with a testicular cancer. And in those days, disseminated testicular cancer was the most common cause of death in young men. And I had to tell him he would be dead in six months. And 
we offered him a couple of a new drug called bleomycin, which turned out to be a drug I got interested in, and that's how I ended up in the industry. And, and then when two of my two of the drugs I was involved with was added to vinblastin, we essentially cured testicle cancer. So that was a very meaningful moment for me in my career. I then went on to be president of R&D at SKB, SmithKline Beckman, which was one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the industry still is. And I learned a great deal there. And among them, uh, some things that I felt were that needed to be fixed. And one was that the productivity of the industry was declining and it was going to continue to decline because it was dependent on an inefficient technology. So I resolved to try to create a, a disruptive, new, more efficient technology that could make better drugs. And that led to the founding of Ionis and the attempt to create RNA-targeted therapeutics. And so we are the pioneer in this technology, and we've persevered through 30 years of hard work. And and as a result, today, you know, we uh, are a successful company. We are reporting our fourth year of operating profitability. We have uh, the first RNA blockbuster medicine that's marketed by our partner Biogen, and that's called Spinraza. Uh, we have five other drugs that we've commercialized. We have a pipeline of 40 plus medicines in development with quite a number of them in phase three. And they include medicines for severe and rare diseases and many, many medicines for the much more common problems. There is no magic. We simply had a plan to develop the technology. We've persevered in continuing to create and advance the technology as we are today. And so the main message I would give is that we're a technology-based company that's built on a different business model that doesn't recreate the fully integrated company because I think it's detrimental to that model is detrimental to innovation. And we've been successful. And the technology is is still changing rapidly for the better. And so the medicines we are making today are better than what we did two years ago. And the medicines we're going to make Two years from now, we'll be better than the medicines today. Uh, we have one medicine in development for every 11 or 12 people at Ionis, which is a testament to the productivity of the technology. If you compare that to any other technology, I think you'd feel very fortunate if, if you had one medicine in development for every 1,000 or 2,000 people in the company. I think you can see why uh, we and, and and many others are so excited about what's been done and what lies ahead in the future that the technology has in front of it. Congratulations on the very innovative work you've done thus far and really creating that platform that's really going to allow much better precision medicines for a range of conditions. Thank you. And I do agree with that. And I think one of the lessons of modern science is that even for what looked like simple one gene diseases, the number of types of mutations that may be involved, take SCN2 disease, which is a disease we'd like to see something done about that, you know, where babies are born with terrible epilepsy and developmental problems. Sounds like a simple one gene disease. And if, but when you get into it, you find that there are hundreds of different kinds of mutations with different effects. And so we also need a, a technology efficient enough that we can tackle genuinely per personalized medicines. I don't know that that can be done commercially, but I'm hopeful that it, that our technology can at some point in the near future be 
provided charitably to these ultra rare diseases where you may have one or two or 10 people in the world that actually have the mutation that needs that maybe a technology like this could help fix. And so we're in this remarkable moment where the knowledge is sufficient to teach us a great deal about each uh, patient. And the challenge is finding technologies that are efficient enough and specific enough to take full advantage of all the knowledge we have. And no single technology is going to do that. But we're we are looking forward to playing our role in diseases that range from the end to one, uh, the end one to ten sort of disease that I described, to uh, illnesses that may, that that impact tens of millions of patients as well. And that's that's an exciting future to contemplate. Thanks very much for your time today. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Good luck with your podcast. Fantastic information from Stan, and just listening to his enthusiasm and pride really about where the development of ASOs have come from and his involvement in that was really quite inspiring and um, you know he said we've still got a long way to go but where we're at is is a great place to be. One of the things I found really helpful was Stan putting in that timeline perspective of where ASOs um, sit you know we've had small molecules then monoclonal antibodies sort of ASOs are really sort of currently just breaking through and where the sort of more other gene modifying technologies are going to come, so CRISPR, but it does show they're still some years away in terms of being ready as a sort of prime time, whereas ASOs are becoming ready now. And he talked about um, the current methodology of giving ASOs and that they're often through a spinal tap, but that is evolving as well and that that's evolving to potentially be a medication you take orally, which was something I'd not heard of. So that was uh, a really interesting point that he made. So you can keep up to date with the latest on genetic epilepsy and developmental and epileptic encephalopathies by subscribing to this podcast. Or get regular updates on SCN2A through SCN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SCN2A Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.